Let's now turn to the worship of our God through the preaching and instruction of God's Word. Our sermon text this morning is Judges chapter 1, the entire chapter. Please turn with me there. If you are able, that's page number 256. If you're using a pew Bible, Judges chapter 1. Last week I introduced you to the book of Judges, and I sought to identify a few of its key themes as we begin this new sermon series. But now, as we turn to uh, the text this week, there's still a little bit more of an introduction that is needed before we jump into the lives of the twelve judges. In fact, it was interesting as I was looking at how other pastors and preachers have preached through this book, so many just focus on the 12 judges, and they don't really talk about these first two chapters or or the the kind of the epilogue, the conclusion, the last three chapters. They just jump right into the 12 judges, but judges is unique. It's kind of like the Gospel of John in the sense that it provides its own introduction. Chapters 1 and 2 of Judges are an introduction. It actually summarizes the entire period of the entire book of Judges. It kind of summarizes it all. Whereas the 12 judges are individual stories that take place within this introduction, as it were. So, this week and next week, we're going to look at chapters 1 and chapter 2, respectively, so that we get the author's introduction to this book. And so we understand the historical setting, which is so vital for us making sense of the 12 judges that follow. So, Judges chapter 1, I'm going to... um, Read the entire chapter. I'm going to do my best with some of these uh, strange Hebrew words. But let us listen carefully to the word of God. After the death of Joshua, the people of Israel inquired of the Lord, Who shall go up for us against the Canaanites to fight against them? The Lord said, Judah shall go up. Behold, I have given the land into his hand. And Judah said to Simeon, his brother, Come up with me into the territory allotted to me, that we may fight against the Canaanites. And I likewise will go with you into the territory allotted to you. So Simeon went with him. Then Judah went up, and the Lord gave the Canaanites and the Perizzites into their hand, and they defeated ten thousand of them at Bezek. They found Adonai Bezek at Bezek and fought against him and defeated the Canaanites and the Perizzites. Adonai Bezek fled, but they pursued him and caught him and cut off his thumbs and his big toes. And Adonai Bezek said, Seventy kings with their thumbs and their big toes cut off used to pick up scraps under my table. As I have done, so God has repaid me. And they brought him to Jerusalem, and he died there. And the men of Judah fought against Jerusalem and captured it and struck it with the edge of the sword. And set the city on fire. And afterward, the men of Judah went up to fight against the Canaanites who lived in the hill country, in the Negeb, in the lowland. And Judah went against the Canaanites who lived in Hebron. Now, the name of Hebron was formerly Kiriath Arba. And they defeated Shezai and Ahiman in Tamai. And from there they went against the inhabitants of Debar. The name of Debar was formerly Kiriath Sefer. And Caleb said, He who attacks Kiriath Sefer and captures it, I will give him Axop, my daughter, for a wife. And Othniel, the son of Kenez, Caleb's younger brother, captured it. 
and he gave him Axaw, his wife, his daughter for a wife. When she came to him, she urged him to ask her father for a field. And she dismounted from her donkey, and Caleb said to her, What do you want? She said to him, Give me a blessing, since you have set me in the land of Negeb, and give me also springs of water. And Caleb gave her the upper springs and the lower springs. And the descendants of the Kenite, Moses' father-in-law, went up with the people of Judah from the city of Palms into the wilderness of Judah, which lies in the Negeb near Arad, and they went and settled with the people. And Judah went with Simeon his brother, and they defeated the Canaanites who inhabited Zephath and devoted it to destruction. So the name of the city was called Hormah. Judah also captured Gaza with its territory, and Ashkelon in its territory, and Ekron with its territory. And the Lord was with Judah, and he took possession of the hill country. But he could not drive out the inhabitants of the plain, because they had chariots of iron. And Hebron was given to Caleb, as Moses had said, and he drove out from it the three sons of Enoch. But the people of Benjamin did not drive out the Jebusites who lived in Jerusalem. So the Jebusites have lived with the people of Benjamin in Jerusalem to this day. The house of Joseph also went up against Bethel, and the Lord was with them. And the house of Joseph scouted out Bethel. Now the name of the city was formerly Luz. And the spies came, saw a man coming out of the city, and they said to him, Please show us the way into the city, and we will deal kindly with you. And he showed them the way into the city, and they struck the edge of the sword, struck the city with the edge of the sword, but they let the man and all his family go. And the man went to the land of the Hittites and built a city and called its name Luz. That is its, that is its name to this day. Manasseh did not drive out the inhabitants of Beth Sheen and its villages, or Tanakh and its villages, or the inhabitants of Dor and its villages, or the inhabitants of Eblim and its villages, or the inhabitants of Megiddo and its villages. For the Canaanites persisted in dwelling in the land. When Israel grew strong, they put the Canaanites to forced labor, but did not drive them out completely. And Ephraim did not drive out the Canaanites who lived in Gezer, and the Canaanites lived in Gezer among them. Zebulun did not drive out the inhabitants of Kitron or the inhabitants of Nahalal. So, they, so the Canaanites lived among them but became subject to forced labor. Asher did not drive out the inhabitants of Akko or the inhabitants of Sidon or of Alab or of Akzib or of Helba or of Afik or of Rehob. So the Asherites lived among the Canaanites, the inhabitants of the land, for they did not drive them out. Naphtali did not drive out the inhabitants of Beth Shemesh, or the inhabitants of Beth Anath. So they lived among the Canaanites, the inhabitants of the land. Nevertheless, the inhabitants of Beth Shemesh and of Beth Anath became subject to forced labor among them. The Amorites pressed the people of Dan back into the hill country, for they did not allow them to come down to the plain. The Amorites persisted in dwelling in Mount Heriz, in Ajalon, in Shalib, but the hand of the house of Joseph rested heavily on them, and they became subject to forced labor. And the border of the Amorites ran from the ascent of Akrabim from Selah and upward. Amen. Well, brethren, this is the word of God. Now bow with me as we ask God's blessing upon its preaching. Father, we ask that you would take this ancient and at times very confusing narrative 
and use it for the good of our souls. We pray that you would open it up to us according to your purposes and will for us today. Through the power of your Spirit, in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Well, one of the realities of living in what is often called the post-9-11 age is that we're all too familiar with the concept of holy war, Islamic jihad. In Muslim theology, jihad is holy war waged against the enemies of Islam. Terrorism, of course, being one such expression of it. As we all know, this is religious warfare, and it's not just religious warfare, but it is total war at that. There are no boundaries, no rules of engagement in this warfare. Men and women and children and innocent citizens and bystanders are often targeted in an attempt at total annihilation. And by all accounts, among people of almost every religion and belief, jihad is inherently evil, and it is a despicable thing when we see it, particularly among expressions such as with ISIS. And yet, when we come to the conquest of Israel through the land of Canaan, to the book of Joshua, and now here in the book of Judges, we are faced with God instructing His people to engage in holy war, total war. The Hebrew word for this is harem. Harem warfare. It means to devote to destruction. Perhaps you Uh, um, remember that phrase coming up in our passage this morning and frequently all throughout Joshua and Judges. Not surprisingly then, many people have struggled with this notion, especially given what we saw in the 20th century. We, We have Nazi Germany, right, and the attempt extermination of the Jews. We see the genocide of of Pol Pot in Cambodia, Stalin in Russia and his slaughter, uh, Islamic Jihad, of course. Particularly since the 20th century and and these, these horrible atrocities, many modern Christians have struggled with this idea here in Scripture, this harem warfare. Some have thrown it out. You know, that's just mythology. Some have said, well, that that just shows that the God of the Old Testament is different than the God of the New Testament. Some have gone as far to blasphemy, charge God with wrong. Well, as we come to the book of Judges, this is something that we've got to deal with. We've got to deal with it right away, actually. We've got to deal with it if we were to understand what's going on in this book and, and, and how it applies to our lives here Today, what, what is harem warfare? What is going on with this? Is this like Islamic jihad? Why would God command such a thing? You see, we can't just sidestep this question and jump right to the 12 judges, as so many often do, because this harem warfare is critical to understanding the entire book. It's critical to understanding what made the heroics of the judges so important and necessary. It's critical to understanding God's purposes for the nation of Israel and 
why his judgment fell upon them here in Judges and beyond when they disobeyed. And so this morning, as we, again, this is kind of introduction part two, the author's introduction, as we, as we enter this book, as we dive into those details, we're going to try to make sense out of this question. What is this total warfare? Why did God command it? What was going on? How is it different than jihad? And ultimately, what does this holy war have to do with us here, today, right now? And so in this, I've got three points for you today. The first two, consider the big picture. They're more theological in nature, so I ask that you hang with me with those. And the third is when we'll actually do a blitzkrieg through this chapter one and see what exactly is going on with Israel here. So three points, and the first one is this. Harem warfare in Joshua and Judges gives us a picture of God's justice in the final judgment. This gives us a picture, a glimpse, a window into seeing and understanding God's justice in the final judgment. Here, notice how Judges opens in 1-1. Joshua has died. He had led the conquest up to this point. Israel now asks, who will lead us in his place? And this is a question that the entire book struggles with. The background to all of this, of course, is that Israel became a mighty nation while they lived in Egypt. But they were then enslaved to Egypt. They were in bondage. God delivered them through this um, miraculous exodus through the Red Sea. And he delivered them with a promise. I'm going to give you your own land. You're going to be a nation with your own land. You're going to have peace on every side. This is the promised land. But as they came out of Egypt, they couldn't just waltz right into the land of Canaan and settle down because there were people living there. There were nations living there. There were tribes of people living there. And so this is the, the, the situation as Judges opens. Joshua, who had led the campaign, the military campaign in that sense so far, um, defeated everyone in their path initially as they entered the land. But here in Judges 1.1, there's still pockets of resistance in various places. Israel was still kind of a traveling band at this point. They hadn't settled down. They hadn't put down roots, right? They hadn't found rest from their warfare at this point. And so now they're called to finish the job. And specifically, the 12 tribes of Israel were each promised a portion of the land. And it was up to them now to go and clear out these pockets of resistance. This would be like, for example, if you know Joshua led the people to take the city of Chattanooga. And like the greater area had been conquered and, and they, they, you know, they'd taken the city and, 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 and they're, they're there, but there's still pockets of resistance on Lookout Mountain and Signal Mountain and North Shore. And, and each tribe, whichever tribe was to live in that area, was to go and clean out these pockets of resistance. That's what is going on as we open this book. But the key to this is that they were not just to win the battle, but God instructed them to totally destroy the inhabitants. Harem means devote to destruction. It means to exterminate. 
It means to drive out completely through death, slaughter, whatever means necessary, men, women, and children, sometimes even livestock. Without a doubt, it was a form of total warfare. But I want you to see how this is different from this jihad that we often hear um, um, uh, about nowadays in the jihad that is often waged by various Islamic groups from time to time. How is it different? And what is going on with this? Well, the first key to answering this question is that we must understand that this warfare was ultimately being waged by God Himself. God Himself was the main warrior here. Jihad, by contrast, is human warfare in obedience, right, against unbelievers. Evangelism by force. But here, it's clear as we read the text that God was the one fighting, and that the people of Israel were only participating in that secondarily. If you'll notice, there's a repeated emphasis on God saying, I have given them into your hand. On God going before them. Right? Even this Adonai Bezek says here in verse 7 that he realizes that God has repaid him. He knows that God is ultimately behind what's going on in this. Yes, Israel was participating, and they were called to participate, and sometimes, obviously, as we'll see, they failed to participate, and thus God judged them for it. But it was clear that something more than human is going on here. It should be easy to see when we consider things like Jericho and the walls that came tumbling down, or Gideon in, in Judges chapter 8, where he has an army of 300 that defeat 135,000. This is warfare that's being waged by God Himself. Right on the heels of that, though, is that we must understand that this was warfare not being waged, not against innocent people. God was waging this warfare as an act of His justice against very wicked nations. I mentioned to you last week the Canaanites were a brutal and savage people. Child sacrifice, temple, prostitution, torture, decapitation of their enemies, raping and enslaving of women were very, very common. These and many more horrific practices were very common among them. We must be careful then to understand this warfare in this context. In two places, one of them being Deuteronomy chapter 9, verse 4, God says, I'm giving you this land not because you're so great, not so that you're so much better than everybody else, but because the wickedness of the Canaanites has reached its level. They're done. I'm punishing them. God was acting in judgment. This warfare was an act of His justice. Even still, though, we must be careful here. Sadly, admittedly, various Christian sects down through the years have used God's justice as, you know, a justification for their imperialism, for racial persecution, for unjust war and land grabs. All too often in history, Christians have made that argument, whether it's against, you know, the Indians, the Native Americans here, um, 
in North America or in you know imperialism and expansion oh well they're wicked they're savage they're pagan so they deserve what what they're getting Christians have unfortunately horribly abused this notion the key to this is that this was a one-time thing it is all over now and it was limited to one specific area as well it's not like jihad which is global and ongoing it's not like Imperialism, which is humans acting out of self-interest, apart from God's special and particular revelation. This warfare was a temporary, localized, earthly picture that was meant to portray to us greater spiritual truths. That's what I mean when I say that this gives us a picture of God's final justice excuse me, God's justice in the final judgment. Here, the term I'm going to use, and you'll hear this a lot over the coming months, is intrusion ethics. Intrusion ethics. What what do I mean by that? It means here that this warfare through the nation of Israel was a temporary intrusion of final judgment ethics into human history. I know that's a, that's a lot. That's a mouthful. Let me explain exactly what I mean by that. The intrusion of final judgment ethics. Think about the final judgment. Jesus says that there's going to be a separation of the sheeps and the goats. It doesn't matter if you're a man, a woman, a child. It does not matter your vocation. There will be a clear and hard separation between the people of God and the people in darkness. All of those outside of the grace and mercy of God in Jesus Christ will be sent to eternal punishment. They will be devoted to destruction. And all of those who are in Christ will enter into the promised land of rest. This harem warfare... Like so many things with the nation of Israel, God's purposes with Israel in the Old Testament are to give us a picture of spiritual realities. And here, to give us a picture of the final judgment and what it will look like. It's kind of like Noah and the flood. The same purpose there as well. God judges the world. Those in the ark of Christ are saved. Everyone else, children included, animals included are wiped out. In this sense, harem warfare in this Old Testament setting with Israel is kind of like a movie that depicts real events or an earthly script that depicts heavenly realities. God says, do you want to know what every sin deserves? Do you want to see how I, as a righteous God, will deal with sin at the last day? I'm going to show you ahead of time in real human history so that you might take refuge in me. In the final judgment, God is going to clear the earth of all wickedness, all paganism, all evil as an act of His justice, and He will settle His people in the land of rest permanently, the new heavens and the new earth. And in His justice, all evil will be devoted to destruction. That is the picture of what we see here 
God acting in justice in this warfare. But this leads us to a second point. Not only in the bigger picture does this teach us about the final judgment of God, but it also reveals how God was calling Israel to obey where Adam failed. Again, hang with me. I know there's some theological stuff going on here, but I'm trying to lay the groundwork for the next six months, okay? We've got to understand this if we're going to make sense of this narrative. God, it, this warfare reveals how God was calling Israel to obey where Adam failed. Perhaps the question could be asked this way. If this warfare was God's doing... What's Israel's role in all this? Why is he using them? To answer that question, we have to go back to the very beginning. God made Adam the first man, the first human being, and he called him my son. God set Adam in a fruitful, fertile land, the Garden of Eden. And in that garden dwelt the very presence of God. When we consider this Adam situation with what's going on with Israel, we see these parallels. And what we see is that God is essentially starting over, for lack of a better term, and replaying the Adamic story. Think about it. Just as God created Adam, God came down to Abraham and created a nation out of nothing, out of a barren womb. And an old man. Just as Adam was God, called God's son, God often calls Israel my son over and over again. Just as Adam was placed in a beautiful garden, here God sets Israel in a fruitful land flowing with milk and honey. And just as God's presence marked the Garden of Eden, God promised his presence among Israel, that he would dwell among them in his tabernacle and in his temple. Just as Adam was commissioned to work and keep the garden, to be a priest and a representative of God, Israel too is called to be a kingdom of priests to God, a light to the nations. God's dealing with Israel is a replay of his dealing with Adam. So we can understand why Israel was called to do what they were called to do by looking back at Adam. And vice versa as well. Romans chapter 5, Paul talks about the first Adam and the second Adam. There's things to be learned by examining the parallels theologically. So in this respect, I want to show you how Adam failed in his commission and how this mirrors Israel coming into the land as well. Think about how Adam failed. Well, the serpent entered the dwelling place of God, the holy temple of God, the garden temple in Eden. And immediately this serpent challenged the nature and the word of God. The serpent tempted Eve. Adam listened to her. And what happened was the dwelling place of God became defiled by sin. Adam and the entire human race with him fell into sin. And the curse of the fall came upon this entire creation. 
Looking back at this, we can see that Adam was ultimately called to engage in harem warfare against the enemy of God who had slithered into the holy land of God. Adam should have devoted the serpent to destruction. Adam should have crushed his head. Adam should have conquered through total warfare against evil. And in the very same way, Israel is called to do the same in the holy garden of of God's dwelling in the promised land. They were to obey in their commission to exterminate the Canaanites just like Adam. They were to ensure that God's glorious presence in that land was to remain because God could not dwell with evil. And this is why they were called to such total war. They were to show no mercy. They were to spare no soul. God with Israel is simply replaying the tape. And He's showing them and us, essentially. And just like Adam, we would all fail if we were in his place. He is showing the hopelessness of man being able to obey in and of his own strength. And he's pointing forward as well to the greater Israel, the true Israel, the true Son. The second Adam, Jesus Christ, and what he would do and what he would accomplish. This is kind of getting ahead of myself, but this is the purposes of God using Israel to cleanse this land. Well, now let's jump into the text itself for our third and final point, and then we will bring this all back to a conclusion. The third and final point today is that. By compromise and worldliness, Israel failed in her commission. By compromise and worldliness, Israel failed in this commission. As we jump into chapter 1, we see that initially Israel got off to a great start. They begin in verse 1 by inquiring of the Lord, who shall go up first for us? Who is to take the lead now that Joshua is gone? They do the right thing, and God answers, Judah shall go up for you. We will see this theme of Judah again and again throughout this book. But sadly, this is only one of two times in the entire book where Israel actually inquires of the Lord what to do. Here at the beginning, and then here at the end. Most of the time, they rely upon their own strength and their own wisdom. But, but God says Judah shall go up. It lays the groundwork for King David to come from the trial of Judah as opposed to Saul. Remember, this book was written during uh, the period of 1 Samuel. And it lays the groundwork, of course, as well for the lion of the tribe of Judah, the Lord Jesus Christ. But here, they get off to a good start, but very quickly, fault lines appear and unraveling quickly takes place. Here in verses 4 through 7, we have this incident with Adonai Bezek, Lord Bezek here. We see in verse 4 that by the power of God, he gave the enemies of Bezek into the hands of Israel. Judah and Simeon pursue and overtake this king. We read here in verse 6, but what do they then do? Here's this odd incident where they cut off his thumbs and his big toes. 
What are they, why are they doing this? What does this teach us? Well, in a practical sense, it removes his ability to wage war. You can't wield a sword. You can't run swiftly in battle, um, being decapitated in that way. But there's also a symbolic sense here, too. In Exodus 29 and in Leviticus 8, the priests of God, when they're offering sacrifices, are to perform this ritual where they, where they put a drop of blood on their right thumbs and on their big toes. So in this sense, it practically disarms him, but also symbolically. It kind of communicates, we have disarmed false religion. We've removed his ability to serve as a king we've remo- and, and warrior and removed his ability to serve as a priest as well. But in reality, although this might have been their good intentions, the truth is, is that this behavior is disobedience. And this decapitation is ultimately typical of Canaanite behavior. We read in verse 7, Adonai Bezek himself says that he had done this to 70 others. And so the narrative, the point that the writer is trying to make to us is that they are not treating this king as God had commanded them. Instead, what is happening, they are adopting the practices pagan nations around them. They are acting like Canaanites. This is, in a sense, the definition of worldliness. Setting aside the commandments of God when they fail to make sense, when there seems to be a better option, when when our opinion is more normal, right? Makes more sense. Adopting thought patterns of this world. You can almost hear them saying here, oh, I've got a better way here. Let's disarm him and let's show everyone how we are disarming false religion as well. Let's deal with him a little more humanely and this can really send a message to everyone. It may seem like a small thing, but this is the first crack in the foundation that will ultimately lead to the crumbling of the house of Israel in this book. So what happens then? Here in chapter 1, we read of the conquest of Judah and Othniel and the commendable faith of Caleb's daughter. We're going to look at all that next week because that's when we deal with Othniel next week. So we will come back to this. But we see in verse 19 that Judah, with all of his excess, was unable to drive out completely the inhabitants of the plain because they had chariots of iron. This is not a statement of military might. Tell that to Jericho or to Gideon's 300 men. This is an excuse they gave for their disobedience. This is ultimately unbelief. Oh, they've got chariots of iron. We have no hope. Never mind that the the Lord and Creator of heaven and earth is on their side. This is more disobedience. They did not drive them out. Furthermore, we read this account of this man in Luz here in verses 23 through 26. Look with me there. I'm just going to read it. And the house of Joseph scouted out Bethel. Now the name of the city was formerly Luz. And the spies saw a man coming out of the city. And they said to him, Please show us the way into the city, and we will deal kindly with you. And he showed them the way into the city. And they struck the city with the edge of the sword, but they let the man and all his family go. And the man went to the land of the Hittites and built a city and called its name Luz. 
That's its name to this day. Here again we have an apparent victory that is ultimately marred by disobedience and compromise. Israel was called to show mercy to no one. The Lord was with them. They didn't need to find a secret way into the city. They didn't need that uh, before with all of their conquests. They did what, was ma- what made sense to them in their own eyes. What happens when they let this man and his family go? Well, he goes and he builds another city and he gives it the very same name, Luz. The writer showing just the absurdity of their actions. It's as if their victory never even happened. You may think, well, what about Rahab in, in the story of Jericho? She, she helped them find a way. But she immediately professed faith in Yahweh. And she joined herself to Israel from there forward. She was the exception, not the rule. Israel's treatment of this man is in direct disobedience and is in a lack of faith. The consequences came back to haunt them. At this point, I just want to show how, at this point in the chapter, that is, things really start to fall like dominoes. In verse 21, the tribe of Benjamin did not drive out the Jebusites, and they continued to live among Israel. In verse 27, Manasseh did not drive out the inhabitants of Bethsheen. They put them to forced labor rather than devoting them to destruction. In verse 29, Ephraim did not drive out the Canaanites. In verse 30, Zebulun did not drive out the inhabitants of Katron. In verse 31, Asher did not drive out the inhabitants of Akko. In verse 33, Naphtali did not drive out the inhabitants of Beth Shemesh. In verse 34, the Amorites pressed the people of Dan back into the hill country, persisted in dwelling there even under forced labor. Nine times in this chapter... The writer tells us that Israel did not drive out the inhabitants of the land. Four times it tells us that instead of destroying the enemy, they subjected them to forced labor, which again, it makes sense in the eyes of man. They can build buildings, they can make roads, they can serve in your fields. But it's disobedience in God's eyes. This is their failure to fulfill their commission just like Adam. And it's this downward spiral that brings God's judgment, as we read in chapter 2 and beyond, and necessitated the rise of the judges to deliver them. And thus chapter 1 concludes with Israel's obedience, excuse me, disobedience now has led to them adopting Canaanite behavior and practices, which in chapter 2 we see includes adopting the Baals, their God, It led to the Canaanites continuing to dwell in the land, God's holy land, defiled by pockets of evil. It led to verse 32 and 33. Instead of Canaanites dwelling among Israel, Israel is said to be living among the Canaanites. A reversal where the people of God are actually outnumbered. This is not how things were supposed to be. And in verse 35, we see the Canaanites persisted to dwell among them. They had more power, more courage, more persistence than the people of God who had the maker of heaven and earth on their side. It is a shocking indictment upon the lack of faith and obedience of Israel to the point in verse 36 that not only were the Canaanites in the land, but they had an objective established border within Israel. 
a complete and utter failure. The wheels have come off. Through their lack of faith, through their worldly compromise to the commandments of God, Israel failed in her commission and set herself up for judgment, which we will see next week in chapter 2. Well, brethren, let's bring this all to a conclusion today. And I commend you for bearing with me as we trudge through some of the theological background necessary to understanding this picture here. I do want to ask, what does this all have to do with you and me here today? Well, I hope and I urge you not to look at the God of the Old Testament Scriptures, the God of harem warfare, as if He's different than the God of love in the New Testament. God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. God's harem warfare serves as a warning for us of how He will deal with sin at the last judgment. And Israel's Failure here serves as a warning to us as well of the dangers of sin, the dangers of compromise, the dangers of worldliness, the dangers of not being faithful in the little as well as the big, of making peace with sin, little pockets of sin in our life, as if it won't come up and bite us. We also are to understand that the people of God are no longer to take up the sword. This was for a temporary period and a temporary time. Jesus said, my kingdom is not of this world. That's why my servants are not fighting. But it does picture and point us to the true warfare of the Christian life. Against sin. Against Satan. Against the flesh. We read this language in Ephesians 6, chapter Chapter 6, verse 12. We wage not against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers and spiritual forces. We read in 2 Corinthians 10.5 that we destroy arguments. We, in every lofty opinion, raised against the knowledge of God, that we take every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. Here, this is how harem warfare is to continue. It's fought in your mind every single day. It's fought in your heart when you are tempted to sin, when you see the allurements of the flesh. It is fought with weapons of faith and truth and the Word of God. This is harem warfare for us. But this is also where we have great comfort and hope and assurance as well. Because we don't fight alone. In fact, we have no reason to fear not only the just warfare of the wrath of God, but also our enemies. Because God, the Father, has unleashed His holy war on Jesus Christ in our place. It's not that He's different. It's not that He can just wink at sin. But this is what's so amazing about the Christian idea of holy war as opposed to Islamic jihad. God in Christ is so loving that He ultimately pours out His judgment not on His people, but on Himself. Himself. 
on his own son so that we might be saved. And thus, as we look to Jesus Christ, we see that He is the obedient Adam and the obedient Israel. We are now assured that He has defeated sin and Satan and death in our place. We are now told that He has burst open the holy, holy, holy of holies, the promised land of His eternal dwelling, of God's eternal presence in the new heavens and the new earth, and that He is presently leading us into that holy of holies. As he is defeating all of his and our enemies as the cleanup and the pockets of resistance that need to be eradicated is still ongoing but will be accomplished because the war has ultimately been won at the cross. The question then of who will lead God's people, we are to look to the lion from the tribe of Judah, the true and greater Adam, the true Son of God. And and all of this really brings this chapter down into our hearts and our lives. We can inquire of the Lord as Israel does here, and we know that He, as our prophet, reveals to us the way to God. We can go forth with the assurance that He is with us, that He has given our enemies into our hand, as it were, that we have the assurance of His victory, of His presence, of His power, and that He will see us through to the very end. This is a warfare that doesn't depend upon us like it did with Israel. We are simply called to trust in Him. We are simply called to take our refuge in Him. To look to Him as our Lord and Savior and to see that it is by His stripes we are healed and by His work all has been accomplished. This is the beauty of the Gospel in the book of Judges. Our longing for a king. We need a king. This writer is screaming. And the answer comes in the New Testament. When the Son of God appears upon the scene and fulfills every area of obedience and conquering where Adam and Israel failed and man is powerless. Well, may God give us the grace today to look to our warrior Savior, to trust in His work, to rest in His promises, and to wage this warfare with a confidence that the victory is ours through His Spirit, and through His work and His presence in our lives. Amen. Let's pray.